You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Welcome. I'm starting us off this week with a story that some of you may be partly familiar with. So in June of 2005, the premier journal Science published an article that totally rocked the birding world. That may sound kind of nerdy and obscure, but this story was... Yes, yeah, it does, well, yes. <laughs> even as a, a bird nerd. But I'm, as Rachel says, I'm here for it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this story, though, was so juicy that it was quickly picked up by major news outlets around the world, um, leading to some pretty breathless headlines. And the title of this article in Science was Ivory-Billed Woodpecker Campophilus principalis persists in continental North America. Oh, I remember that well. Yes. You would. So why Kirk. was you would you would? Why was this news so astounding? Yeah. First, some background. I'm I'm um, lost. Yeah, the ivory-billed woodpecker was the largest woodpecker species in the United States, about 19 and a half inches long, which is uh, three inches larger than the pileated woodpecker, which is a fairly common large woodpecker. Right. And its habitat was old-growth forests in the southeast. Um, each pair needed a very large range to survive. Yeah. And its right. population was decimated in the late 19th century by, uh, by heavy logging across the south, so habitat destruction, and also by hunting for food and yeah. for collections. I can't imagine woodpeckers the best tasting bird. You wouldn't think, but I mean, I guess they're vegetarians, so most, no, they're not. What am I talking no, about? They're insectivores, <laughs> I'm pretty sure. I don't know. They eat bugs mostly. <laughs> It seems like it would be a very tough bird, but what do I yeah. know? I've never tasted woodpecker. I wouldn't know. Yeah. Um, their bills and other parts had actually been valued and traded by some native peoples, and um, white settlers took that on also, used them for decoration, and, of course, on a more massive and destructive scale, as sure. tended to do. Um, yep. So some people thought it was extinct by the 1920s even, but it was not yet. Uh, it's it's really it actually quite depressing. Then. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'm saying some very controversial things already. Um, All right. It's, uh, <laughs> it's very depressing to read the Wikipedia page section on sort of late encounters with this bird because all of the ones in the 20s or 30s are like some guy seeing one and then killing it for a specimen. Yeah. Sounds about right. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that's right. the last... Yeah. The last universally accepted sighting of an ivory bill was in 1944. So we do have some good photographs and sound recordings of real ivory bills. However, since then, people keep thinking that they have heard or seen an ivory-billed woodpecker, usually somewhere in the inaccessible forested swamps of Arkansas, Louisiana, or Florida. Okay, so these reports surface a few times a decade. No one ever seems to somehow come up with a clear photo or an unmistakable sound recording. Right. Right. And these are places where uh, 
pileated woodpeckers are also found. Indeed, they are. (laughs) (laughs) That's highly problematic. Just a little bit. So this uh, this 2005 science article included a four-second video that showed a partly obscured perched bird that then flies off away from the camera. And this was the basis of their identification of, uh, of the bird. It has since become what an NPR article referred to as the Zapruder film of the birding world. <laughs> so for those of you who don't know what the Zapruder film is, that's the home movie that some guy took of the Kennedy assassination. Oh. It was analyzed okay. to death. I would, I would say it's more like the Patterson film uh, of, of Bigfoot fame. I don't oh, know the Patterson okay. film. Oh, you, oh you've seen it. Oh, you okay. Absolutely, everyone listening right. has seen the Patterson. It's the footage like of Bigfoot walking where we get all the, the memes. You know, images of all yeah. the, the memes and the stickers and the, the cutout ones on the side of the road where he's kind of swinging his arms like he's kind of... Mm-hmm. That's, that's all from the Patterson film. Got it. Oh, cool. I'm looking at my Bigfoot sticker now. Yeah. <laughs> well... Needless to say, this article inspired lots of debate and skepticism. Um, skeptics believe that what it shows is, in fact, as, as you alluded to, Kirk, a pileated woodpecker. Um, but this kerfuffle over whether the ivory-billed woodpecker is extinct or just rare and hard to locate is, is not exactly what I'm wanting to talk about. I want to talk about it as part of a larger phenomenon of what I'm calling cryptically extinct animals, which is a term I made up, to be clear. I I, love where you're going with this, Victoria. I actually, it kind of, sort of, vaguely ties into what I'm covering today. Okay, cool. Not mine. So, (laughs) (laughs) okay. Two two likes and a not like. That's fine. Um, So, cryptically extinct in my definition. These are animals that were documented by science and apparently went extinct usually sometime in the last 200 years. But people keep mm-hmm. thinking that they see them, and there's usually this kind of mythology built up around the possible sightings of these animals. Right. So right. another major example here is the thylacine, otherwise known as the Tasmanian tiger. Yeah. At any rate, the thylacine was a large uh, dog-like marsupial predator from Australia, Tasmania. Mm-hmm. Um, and the last known individual died in captivity in 1936. And yet unconfirmed sightings pop up regularly um, but again never there's never conclusive photographic or biological proof um, some cases uh, have outright fraud so the great auk was a large flightless puffin relative of the north atlantic that went extinct around 1850 That's and in sad. 1951 in new jersey yeah it is sad they were um, flightless and easy to catch for food so that was very bad for the auk the great auk M- makes sense um, but yeah. In nineteen fifty one in New Jersey, some large bird footprints were found leading to the water on a beach that many thought could only have come from a great auk, but were later discovered to have been made <laughs> as a hoax by a local prankster. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah. I'm not gonna lie, I would do that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> good to know about you, that Rachel. Let's explain those T Rex tracks I found at the park the other day, Rachel. So see there you go. Maybe they're just giant they're, turkeys. Could be. They are dinosaurs. Exactly. There are also numerous hoaxes um, relating to the eastern cougar, which was a subspecies of the mountain lion that went extinct. Uh, and mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a popular thing to blame stuff on. Like there was some, I think there was some kid who fell out of like a hunting blind and got all scratched up and blamed, tried to blame it on a cougar. 
<laughs> Just, no, no, dude. That, that one's interesting because there are cougars and mountain lions that are now moving into yeah. the eastern United States from places like, say, South Dakota. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's really complicating the picture of, um, you know, whether or not there were any of the original population left. Although I know genetics has um, pretty much ruled that out. Yeah. Genetics is handy that way. Yeah, sure I is. I like it. So I am not here to get into a major back and forth about the evidence pro and con, like whether various species are actually alive. My feeling is that most of them are probably not, but that is not really the point. I am more interested in what it says about people and right. why people are so eager to believe that extinct animals are not really extinct. That's fair. Yeah. So Go I see on. a few factors here. Um, like, I think people want to believe in the mystery of nature and the wilds and the fact that there are places that are still so wild that the creatures like the thylacine or the ivory-billed woodpecker could be surviving right. in spite right. of what we're doing to all those wild places. They want to absolve their guilt. Yeah, we want to believe that in spite of our destructive ways, animals will find a way to survive. I think there is a, there is a big absolving the guilt factor to it um also it can be it's genuinely hard to know if an animal is extinct you know as they say you can't prove a negative right right so it's just sort of the the procedure is like after a certain number of decades if no confirmed sightings have been made the animals declared extinct um but you can never completely know for sure and also there are cases real cases of animals that were thought to be extinct or extirpated which is like locally extinct um showing up again so there are ones like the coelacanth which was one of the first um ones you did for this podcast Yay. Yay. yeah that's right love the coelacanth so in that case it was thought to be prehistoric um but was found to be still alive but right. then there are ones like the Zanzibar leopard, which was a local population of leopards on an island off the coast of Tanzania, and it was thought to be extirpated. But a real live leopard was caught on a camera trap in 2018. Super cool. That's way awesome. Yeah. Another example is the New Guinea singing dog, um, which is a dingo relative that was thought to be extinct. But a population was discovered in a remote area of New Guinea in 2016. There are a lot of remote areas of New Guinea, so... Maybe that one's a little less surprising. I mean, ultimately, I just, I think there's a lot of wishful thinking going on here. We are unfortunately in the midst of what some call the sixth great extinction, which is um, caused by humans. And something that will only continue to get worse as climate change gets worse. And, you know, one way to view this, these, these sorts of cases are as a distraction that keeps people from focusing on the destruction that really is happening and the animals that really are going sure. extinct. Yeah. You know, another way of looking at it is the possibility, like the possibility of finding these species has in some cases prompted major land conservation efforts. So like in the case of the ivory-billed woodpecker, there've actually been large tracts of land that have been set aside in, in the areas of these putative sightings. Um, and other That's cases awesome. like that have happened in, in other... Um, I think there's sort of another side to that that coin of the land conservation. I know one of the... Uh, concerns with the ivory bill is that there maybe were some, maybe the last pair or, you know, an individual ivory bill left. But I know what happened was this was a big hunting area where it had been seen. And when they decided to shut it to, they basically shut the area down to do this research and try to identify it. And there's some speculation that some of the local hunters uh, took care of the ivory bill problem and basically snuck in and shot the bird 
so that they could keep the hunting area open. Mm. That's, you know, that, I know that's sort of a birder versus hunter kind of thing. Um, but there was even, I think, some speculation from some of the locals who were like, you know, that sounds about right. Uh, so they've now set aside all this land. And it's like, well, it might not, they be may there. not even be there. If they were there, they may not be there anymore because locals sort of took care of the problem. Yeah. Uh, which is very unfortunate. But it does conserve the land for other species that Indeed are there. Does. Well, I was trying to end the episode on a more positive <laughs> note, but you guys managed to bring it down, so good work. Any time. <laughs> um, well, I don't I don't really have anything else to add. But uh, <laughs> Kirk, just, bring just some food for thought, everybody. Oh yeah, my topics are real upper. Great. It'll be Mine one is of fun. those episodes. <laughs> Mine is fun. <laughs> Uh, bat bombs, anybody? I think that was oh like gosh. our most depressing episode. Probably. All right. Uh, we're about to have a break. And when we come back, Kirk will be here with a, with a depressing topic for all of us. Kirk here with a quick note. If you're enjoying the show, be sure to subscribe and leave a five-star review. It helps other lovers of The Strange find our show. You can also find and follow us on social media. Search for Strange by Nature Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or come visit us at strangebynaturepodcast.com. We'll see you there. Now, back to the show. All right, so my topic this week, uh, it's not depressing. I don't think it's just uh, about something that some pe- has a few things involved that some people may be not fans of. Let's put it that way. Okay, excellent. So uh, we're at the end of the summer now, and I have to say, at least where we record here in Minnesota, it was an incredibly mild summer for mosquitoes. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, a, yeah. A big reason for that was the record-setting drought we had. Now, to be fair, uh, there were mosquitoes, and I got my share of bites, but I didn't get swarmed and like chased out of the woods like some of our worst summers. Uh, did you both have similar experiences? Yes, indeed. I did. I did hear, though, that because of the recent rain that's happened, it's been mm-hmm. really bad at... <laughs> they were just waiting? They were waiting. <laughs> I'm guessing with the drought in many parts of the country, probably a lot of our listeners also experienced a bit of a break from mosquitoes this summer. So I'm, I'm hoping you did. Maybe that was sort of a, a benefit of having to deal with the drought. Um, to be clear, not all mosquitoes thrive in like the, the wettest of weather. There are some that prefer dry weather. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the one that tends to uh, spread West Nile virus is one that actually prefers a little bit drier weather. But, you know, we got that going for us. Yay. Uh, one of the things I notice when working with kids, because I was a professional naturalist, I, I end up teaching kids a lot, is that some kids just get absolutely slammed with mosquitoes yeah. when they go in the woods. Yeah. They just and get some eaten alive. Pretty unaffected, right? Uh, now, there's a lot of factors at play here. And first up uh, is the one I think is probably, frankly, the biggest, is whether or not the families use bug repellent with DEET. Mm-hmm. Right? So... I know there are some families that don't want to put chemicals on their kids, so they go for what they think is the natural route. Uh, do keep in mind, though, that those natural bug sprays have chemicals in them. They just happen to be chemicals made by plants as opposed to chemicals made by humans, right? Right. They're still chemicals. Um, and just because something is naturally occurring doesn't mean it's inherently safe. If you don't believe me, I encourage you to go eat some arsenic. Or uh, go on down to the <laughs> local organic farm and ingest a cup of the all-natural copper sulfate they put on crops. 
Uh, seriously, don't do either of those things. Please do not. Uh, we <laughs> do not recommend. Strange by nature does Both not recommend you do either of those things. Yeah, we do not don't recommend you eat copper sulfate or um, arsenic, right? But like arsenic is found in apple seeds and copper sulfate is natural, but it's extremely poisonous, even though you're right. allowed to use it on organic farms. So natural and, and that's a little side rant of mine. Natural does not necessarily mean safe or better. Right. Um, I think par parents mean well, so they don't put DEET on their kids' clothes, and they discover that their suburban backyard is not the same place as the big woods, mm -hmm. and a little citronella oil on your sleeve in the backyard may keep a few tiny number of mosquitoes living there away, but if you try that in the woods where I work, <laughs> uh, your child mm -hmm. will come home covered in dozens of welts and maybe never want to go back into the woods again. So yep. uh, I think we've all seen this over and over. I use but there are, other, there are other factors at play, though, uh, and besides just whether or not you're wearing good bug spray. Um, and so I want to kind of go over some of those, those factors of why some people get eaten by mosquitoes worse than others. Uh, <clears throat> one of them I think is kind of interesting is the color of your clothes. Uh, research has shown that mosquitoes tend to prefer dark colors over light ones. And all things being the same, people wearing black clothes in the woods will get more bites than people wearing white clothes. I love the color of our uniform then, Kirk. Yeah, we end up wearing like a... A dark blue. Dark. Yeah, very dark navy blue. It's, it's great for mosquitoes. Mm -hmm. uh, it is hard to say why exactly this is happening, but one theory is that there's not a lot of white animals in the woods especially in the summertime. And so mosquitoes key in on darker colors, which could represent a possible food source. So another explanation uh, that could also have to do with this, I think, though, is heat. Because one of the things they talk about is that uh, mosquitoes can look at like heat sources. They, they, they focus in on heat sources and go after them. So if you run hotter than other people that you are with, you may seem more attracted to mosquitoes, or basically they, they may just be able to find you easier but right. that could also sort of explain the clothes maybe mm -hmm. i don't know if the researchers have really looked at this but if you're wearing black clothing in theory you are you know going to show up as hotter than if you're wearing white clothing right makes sense mm -hmm. yeah so I, <clears throat> I don't know if they've teased out temperature as an independent variable in those experiments but that'd be really interesting to see now uh other studies have shown that mosquitoes uh I would say this was 2007. There was a study suggesting, I love this one, that drinking beer makes you attracted to mosquitoes. <laughs> That's too bad. So, that, so there's that. Uh, a 2004 study showed that they prefer pregnant women. Oh, Ooh. good. Uh, so if you're pregnant, drinking beer while wearing black clothes and hanging out in the woods, should not uh, well, be doing one of those You should not be things. drinking beer. <laughs> Uh, if you're pregnant, <laughs> no. but if you were doing all three of those things, you may be coming home with more mosquito bites than if those things were not true. Well, pregnant women yeah. have more blood than regular women. Well, that is a really interesting thing for you to mention, because I think all of this is interesting, but I'm after the strange, right? And so, uh, one of the strangest reasons mosquitoes may be attracted to you has to do with your blood. Mm -hmm. And specifically, not how much blood you have, but what blood type you are. Do either of you happen to know what your blood type is? I yeah. do, actually. I do. Oh, excellent. And a lot of people have no clue. What, what, what blood types are you? I am O positive. Hey, blood You're buddy. You're both wow. positive? Wow. Now, Jinx. I have not specifically had my blood typed, but I have had uh, DNA analysis done. And through that, I'm fairly certain that I am 
A and I believe A positive. Okay. Uh, so my that's, dad that's pretty cool. and my brother are A positive, and my dad got eaten alive all of the time in uh, the woods by mosquitoes. It was honestly on my side. It was hilarious. Not so much for him. Well, uh, that uh, goes against the research I'm about to tell you. But oh, here good. we go. <laughs> uh, the first, uh, so there have been a number of studies that show a correlation between blood type and your attractiveness to mosquitoes. Uh, the science is a little complicated and not as clear as it maybe seems at first blush. So I want to kind of walk you through it. Uh, the first study I know of that looked at this was by uh, Corrine Shearwood and was called, brace yourself, Preferential Feeding feeding of Anopheles gambiae mosquitoes on human subjects of blood group O, a relationship between ABO polymorphism and malaria vectors. Okay. Nice cogent uh, name for a study. So what this study showed seemed pretty straightforward. Mosquitoes, at least the species being studied, showed a preference for people with O, type O blood. Right. I've heard of that, yeah. Now, that's, that's fascinating, but it just screams, why and how? Yeah. Those are the two questions that come up for me. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't really something this study looked at. It was just showing that there's, there's this correlation. But uh, for me, it's, I, whenever I hear something like this, I go, okay, well, why would that be so? Mm-hmm. And then also, like... Um, how do the mosquitoes like, know? How, how do they know? <laughs> exactly, right? So... I, I, I dug deeper on this, and the evidence is still murky, but it seems like there may be more to the story than just blood type. I did read up on another study that came out more recently in 2004, and this one showed that mosquitoes, a different species this time, were more likely to land on subjects with type O than any other group. So it kind of reinforced that first study. Um, but perhaps huh. owing to not a huge sample size, while the numbers were higher in the O group than all of the rest, they were only statistically significant when you compared O to A. Okay. That makes sense? Yeah. So like if you compare O to B, it was still a higher number in O than B, but it maybe wasn't, they couldn't show that it was actually statistically significant. And again, the sample size wasn't huge, so that, that probably accounts for some of that. Well, uh, I don't, maybe it might be hard to get people to sign up for studies where you're going to have mosquitoes suck on their blood. Um, <laughs> I know a lot of people who don't like yeah, that. Yeah, so a larger, a larger study to double check that would be really cool. The same study, though, also suggested that it may not just be blood type. And this may be getting at that how thing. Okay. So some people in the human population are what's called, it's a lovely word, secretors. <laughs> right. Don't like so, that. I know. You may be a secretor, dear listener. Uh, so bear with me. Uh, the letters A, B, and O in your blood type refer to an antigen on the surface of your red blood cells. Some people... Uh, also secrete these same antigens in other bodily fluids. So, oh. for instance, like tears or saliva. Okay. Okay, so this study seemed to show that the mosquitoes may also be attracted to those secretions. So that could actually explain how the mosquitoes can tell what your blood type is. They're not, may, perhaps, they're not actually detecting the blood type. They're detecting these other secretions that also happen to have... Um, those same antigens, yeah. mm-hmm. right? Well, isn't so, o, po- o blood, like O positive, most more common than a lot of other blood types too? It is, and that was a thought that crossed my mind. It's sort of like if that's just what most of your food has, it would make sense that that's what you would be most keyed into detect. Right. Right? So that, that, that sort of goes to the, 
the why for me. I was like, why? Why? It's often said they have a preference for type O blood, mm-hmm. and I don't know that any studies have shown that they somehow prefer it because like it's better for them or there's an advantage to getting that. It may simply be that if you are type O, you are easier for the mosquitoes to find, mm-hmm. and therefore they feed on you more. Right, and that's one of those things that in science we need to kind of tease apart, you know, and not assign like a reason for stuff unless we can really rule out all the other reasons. It's so easy, and you hear it in all kinds of articles online too. Like, oh, they prefer people with type O blood. It's like, well, do they, or is it that it's easier to find them? Right. So the word preference is a pretty loaded word to use with that. I think it's a really cool thing, and we still are learning more about it with every study that is done. Um, so we're definitely going to be learning more in the future, but I think it's really uh, just really kind of fascinating that something like your blood type, which most of us don't even know. I mean, we happen to apparently know that, but a lot of people don't know their blood type, mm-hmm. that that could actually affect how much mosquitoes are attracted to you. Um, one other little bonus uh, kind of thing here. I will tell you the percentage of who is a secretor and who isn't varies wildly around the world. Like in some populations, it's 100%. In some populations of the world, it's only 20%. And so mm-hmm. your ethnicity and where you live in the world has a lot to do with whether or not you are a secretor. Um, if you're a non-secretor, you're probably not going to be stung by mosquitoes as much. And a little fun fact over here, non-secretors are also, for whatever reason, not as susceptible to the norovirus oh. or to noroviruses. Wow. Which I can tell you from first-hand experience. That's nice. Uh, they are absolutely horrifying if you ever had one. Um, yeah. But I will save the yep. topic of neuroviruses for another day. So yeah. uh, we will go to the break here. And when we come back, uh, Rachel, uh, you got something for us, right? Yeah, I do. Awesome. See you in a bit. All right, so I want you both to imagine being in, like, ancient Greece for a minute. Got it. Uh-huh. I'm there. Yep. You're there. And you're being told of a creature for the very first time. All right. Okay. You heard of this? I'm, I'm picturing that I'm in Pompeii, so I really hope that's not problematic. That's that's not Greece. That's bro. That's, that's yeah. Italy. That's that's. Uh... Oh no! I'll cut that. I'll, I'll Roman cut Empire. That right no, no, you <laughs> cannot. Roman Empire, sure. No, you cannot. <laughs> you can learn geography just like I can. <laughs> um, I'm tired. It's been a long week. <laughs> so you hear of this bird, okay? And it's about the size of an eagle. Mm-hmm. Right. All right. It's said yeah. to be found. In Africa, it might be in your area as well. Uh, okay. And it might come to Egypt about every 500 years or so. All right? So we're suddenly in Egypt now. No, Egypt we're is in, in Africa. You're being told all of these things, okay? You're oh, I see. I thought you were saying in our area, and I thought we were in Greece. So I'm, I, I got you. No, so you, we're in people Greece. are telling you, maybe people from Egypt are saying like, oh, this thing shows up once in a while. Yes. Okay. Um. It has gold around its long neck. It has like a purplish okay. body and rose-colored feathers. Okay. Wow. Beautiful, right? Has some yeah, sort amazing. of feathered crest on its head. And what is really special about this particular bird is it also seems to engulf itself in fire. <laughs> to then oh, be Phoenix? Oh. Reburnt. Um, <laughs> hold on. Hold on a moment. 
<laughs> my my uh, my detectors are going off here. Is are they? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they're, 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 I know there's some children who listen, uh, so I, I won't say which type of detectors. But my I'll say my baloney detector is going off at this point. <laughs> okay. So Victoria, you said it. What bird are you thinking of? The phoenix. The phoenix. Yeah, phoenix. Which is a, a mythical bird. It is. It is a <laughs> mythical bird. Thank you. Well spotted, Victoria. <laughs> well, you know, we're talking about our children listeners, uh, so they yeah. might not yes. know that. Right. Yes, this is a mythical bird, but what I'm bringing to the table is a potential inspiration for the Ooh, phoenix. Oh, okay. okay. Oh, I love it. Some thought behind what inspires the phoenix. All right. Now, we won't actually ever really truly know if this is the bird that it was based on or whether or not um there's another bird that we just don't know anything like sure that, you, you know you can't you can't positively know you can never positively know but some experts i suppose believe that phoenix or phoenix their inspiration came from the flamingo Really? Really, yes. Now, some of the reasons okay. behind this, there are reasons. Your description did right? not sound like a flamingo to me. It did not. But remember, a lot of these uh, myths, when they're based on real life, they come from a pretty much a long line of telephones. So every time you're exactly. exaggerating <laughs> some feature or some way, shape, or form. One thing that discredits this is the fact that flamingos are not solitary birds like the phoenix. Um, they tend to be in colonies of several hundred or if not thousands of birds. But one of the things that lends credence to the idea is that flamingos, uh, their habitat, they can be found anywhere in high elevation. They can be found anywhere where there might be little saltwater ponds or marshes. Um, especially where temperature right. is high. And in fact, I've seen, I, I can't remember the exact article at the moment, but there was an article that talked about one species or one colony being found uh, near, I think, uh, some volcanic, like, um, what's it? Lake? Like a volcanic lake, yeah. So there was a lot yeah. of high heat and sulfur and it was very steamy there so imagine this pinkish bird with a long neck coming out of these a steamy steamy kind of area okay okay. yeah like like, yellowstone exactly another (laughs) reason is because flamingos actually where they build their nests on the salt flats um they build these mounds that are really high and really tall because their chicks actually actually cannot um, stand the heat where they tend to build these nests. So they have these really tall uh, walls that actually help protect them and protect them mm. from the heat. Huh. So a flamingo will go in, a full-grown flamingo will go in, and you might not be able to see it, but you might see this little baby bird come out. You might think <laughs> okay. that it's rising from the ashes, you know? Um, and a lot of the time... Like the haze of the heat that is around, a lot of times it looks very similar to that 
when you are around fire. This same similar like waviness that you get just get when it's and you really got hot. you got the smell of sulfur as well in there. Exactly. You know what? It, what one thing it reminds me as well that I, I think it's important for us to think about when we think about this sort of thing is that people didn't have binoculars no. and spotting scopes and things. Mm. So when you see, we can get sort of so much closer to wildlife and get a better view and see see just the details now than we could before because we have these, even just a camera, you know, that we can zoom in or something on it. And they didn't have that sort of thing. So things were often seen from quite a distance and people are terrible at describing things. Oh, you know? absolutely. Comparing to taking photos. Works. Yeah. yeah. Um, now... That's just a couple of the reasons why it could be the flamingo. Um, the flam flamingo itself is already a kind of strange bird, at least on my count. Maybe not for you, Kirk. Absolutely. Yes. But um, I don't know if you all know this, but flamingo is one of, it's actually six species of flamingo. So there's more than one. It's not just a flamingo. Mm -hmm. There's right. four that are found in the Americas and the Caribbean. And then there's two species that are found in Africa, Asia, and Europe area. Okay, kind of like the Mediterranean type area of Europe and down into uh, Africa. Generally speaking, it's a wading bird in the family. Fino Nico. Here, here it comes. Here it comes. I did practice this and I immediately regret it. Phenocopteridae. There it is. Phenocopteridae. Um. Beautiful. Uh, the phoenix is, is right even the, there in the name of the, the Latin name. Wow. Is. Yeah. Which That's actually cool. is based on, if you go on the Latin name, that actually, uh, flamingo, it comes from the Latin name like flamme or the flame. Mm -hmm. So it's like flame because it's a red tinged bird. Um, now, do, do, do. Now, they're in that particular family. However, it is not a waterfowl bird. It is in the Colombier uh, clade, which includes doves. Hmm. That's yeah. from a 2014 uh, study that was done. Um, they were trying to figure what? out where exactly it fit in, and it between flamingos and grebes, uh, they found that they're more similar to uh, the dove family than to any other waterfowl family, like waders. Was this through genetic genetic testing? Yeah. Cool. So your story has a tie to, uh, you know, my story. It does. And to Victoria's. Yeah. Beautiful. Wonderful. Look at us go. Um, now, adult flamingos stand about four to five feet tall, which means that I am taller than a flamingo. Uh, yeah, but barely. Just barely. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they only weigh about four to eight pounds. Of course, they are a bird. They are a flight. They do fly. They're actually excellent flyers. Um, Correct. And they're most known for their coloration, uh, a sort of reddish pink, um, which varies based on the amount of food that they eat. Uh, they get that color coloration from uh, baric carotenoid, carotene. Beta carotenoids. Thank yeah. you, beta carotenoid. Yep. Um, that is in like the crustaceans and the plankton that they eat, as well as some of the algae. It's something that they are able to eat and just filter out. And they actually use their coloration as a preferential 
um, preferential in mating. Like the more colorful you are, the healthier bird you are, and thus more attractive you are to females when you are mating. Generally speaking, they stay together, but they will choose new mates if they need to. Um, what they do when they're eating is they stir up the food with their feet, their webbed feet, their really long stick feet. And then they reach down and scoop up the mud with their beak, their really curved beak. And then they strain it out the muddy water just to have that food. So they're filter feeders. But they do this while they're upside down, which I find strange. Just the eat upside down. Like as a human. Like they, they turn can't. the head upside down. Like, yeah. Yeah. Huh. Wow. Um, however, even though they're known for their reddish pink, they are underneath their wings. The feathers are actually black and you only see that when they are flying, which I find just fascinating because you don't really think about that. Um, like I said, they live in flocks of several hundred birds, sometimes several thousands. When the young chicks are born, they're actually a gray or white uh, chick just because they haven't gotten any of the beta carotenoids from the other food yet. Uh, they don't get that on for about a year or two until they mature. Um, they also are born with a straight beak and with, as they get older, it starts to curve, which I think oh, is cool. also fascinating just because like you don't, you think they would be born with that curved beak. A lot of birds are. Sure. They're not. They have a straight beak when they're born. Um, huh. Weird. One behavior that they're no they're known for, obviously, is standing on one leg. I know this. Oh, yeah. I thought you were going to say bursting into flames. Oh, there's that <laughs> one. Yeah. Um, they act. Scientists actually don't know why exactly they stand on one leg. One thought is it allows conservation of body heat since they're in cold waters a lot. However, it's also been seen when they're in warm waters or warm areas and things like that. So it, it's. I mean, like, birds. Eh. <laughs> Birds stand on one leg all the time. Exactly. Mm -hmm. All uh, kinds of birds. It's not, not just, it's just not, un, it's not, not unusual. It's not super yeah. unusual. But another thought is that this actually reduces energy expending in their muscles. It, it takes way less energy to just stand on one leg because it, it literally uses huh. no muscle to just right. stand on one leg, um, which I find fascinating. Yeah, yeah, their leg structure, bird's leg structure is totally different than ours. So. Yeah. Oh, completely, yeah. That makes sense. Um, but yeah, that's what I brought for you both today, for all of us today. The inspiration Wait, hold for on. I gotta, I gotta say this. If standing on one leg requires no energy, mm -hmm. wouldn't standing on two legs require two times zero? To <laughs> be... Impossible. I mean, it'd be the same, zero. right? Yeah. Yeah, I don't I really mean, understand why standing on two legs. I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna go. Huh. I don't but know either. I wasn't gonna get go down that rabbit hole, but you did it. Kurt. <laughs> you don't know. I did it. I did it. We're over on time, but we're doing it anyway. There it is. <laughs> That's what I have for you both this week: the inspiration, the potential inspiration, of the phoenix. I will never look at a flamingo the same way. There you go. See right. you all next time. Next time. Bye bye. Thanks everyone for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of the strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. 
you can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange.